0: Globalization, the move against what you might call political globalism takes different forms in different countries. So I think what we're seeing emerge is less of backlash against the backlash. We're just seeing more complicated electoral dynamics starting to manifest themselves.
1: That was Dr. Samuel Gregg. He's our director of research here at the Acton Institute. He's our guest today on Radio Free Acton. Hi, everybody. Mark Vandermoss here. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. And we're glad to have you along today. Uh, We are in the middle of one of the busiest times of year here at the Acton Institute, uh, as we get the whole staff and a a whole bunch of interns as well, all working toward the same goal. We have a big conference to put on next week. It's called Acton University. And everybody is just uh, going 110 percent to make that happen. It's a great conference. We bring in about eight, 900 of our closest friends from around the world, uh, take over the Downtown Convention Center here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and work on building the foundations of a free society, but also a virtuous society. And uh, there's not much more important work than that. We're looking forward to having the conference. Uh, if you want to find out more, uh, you can check out the conference homepage at university.acton.org. Registration for this year obviously is closed by now, but... It won't be long, and they'll open up uh, registration for Acton University 2018. And also keep your eyes on the Acton Power Blog, uh, as we're going to be posting some of the plenary lectures up there. And we might even try to live stream some stuff uh, from the conference. We're going to see if that can happen. But uh, do uh, do keep your eyes on Acton Institute's Power Blog, and uh, you can find that at blog. Acton.org. We've also got a new feature that we're introducing today here on the podcast. It'll be a regular feature and uh, featuring Bruce Edward Walker, a cultural correspondent for the Acton Institute. One of our bloggers, you'll see him on uh, the Acton Power blog from time to time, but he's going to be hosting a new feature called Upstream here on Radio Free Acton. Uh, making a note of the fact, uh, I think it was a Breitbart quote, that politics is downstream from culture. So we're going to talk about some of the stuff that's upstream from politics and hopefully do it from an Acton perspective. Uh, This week, we're going to be talking uh, about Wonder Woman, the movie that was recently released, doing very well in theaters. Uh, Sarah Stanley from Religion and Liberty Magazine here at Acton will be in studio with us today talking uh, Wonder Woman with Bruce Edward Walker. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, before we get to that, though, we uh, took some time to talk to Dr. Samuel Gregg. He's, as I said, our director of research here at the Acton Institute and one of our go-to people when we have questions about what's going on in Europe, the European Union, the U.K., Brexit, all that stuff. Uh, he's he's kind of our man on that, uh, on that topic. And, of course, last week there was an election, a snap election in uh, the U.K., Theresa May and the Conservatives called that election thinking that they'd be able to increase their majority in Parliament, give them uh, give themselves a, a better negotiating position as the Brexit negotiations begin with the EU. Well, it didn't turn out the way they thought. And we talked to Dr. Samuel Gregg to look at some of the implications of the electoral disappointment the Tories experienced last week. Uh, and what, what does it mean for Britain? What does it mean for Brexit? We go over all that in our interview right here on Radio Free Act. And here's Our interview with Dr. Samuel Gregg. It's always a pleasure to have Dr. Samuel Gregg uh, back with us in the Radio Free Acton studios. Uh, Welcome back, Sam. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be back. Well, Sam is the uh, director of research here at the Acton Institute, and uh, the man we talk to when we have questions about European politics, and it's been a momentous week uh, in Great Britain. Uh, With the election results coming in from uh, the the snap election that Prime Minister Theresa May called, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what strategy the Conservatives were pursuing here and then uh, give us a little analysis of the uh, actual real-world results?
0: Well, the Conservative Party up until the most recent election had a slim majority in the House of Commons. And I think Theresa May's purpose in calling a snap election, which she's perfectly entitled to do as Prime Minister, was to basically increase her majority so that she was in a better negotiating position when it came to negotiating Brexit with uh, the, the Europeans. Because when she has a bigger majority, that's more room for her to basically lose people uh, on critical votes if that if it came down to that. So having a, going from a majority of six to a majority of, say, 100 would make all the difference in the world because it actually increases the prime minister's a negotiating position
1: what were they expecting i mean what was the, what was the great hope of the tories coming out of this election what what sort of majority did they have and
0: what were they trying to get. They had a majority uh, basically of around about six seats, which is very slim. All you need in a five-year term is for two of those people to pass away or to resign or to be whatever, something to happen to them. And your majority can be cut very quickly and you can find yourself in a minority position. So they were hoping that they would increase their majority by at least 40 to 50 seats and instead they ended up losing 12 seats overall which means they're still the biggest party but they do not have enough for a majority which means they're going to have to enter into a coalition with the democratic unionist party which is a northern irish protestant party whose primary focus is upon maintaining the union of the northern ireland with the rest of the united kingdom
1: obviously the the tories had been up against jeremy corbyn who is an interesting political figure to say the least uh corbyn the leader of the uh labor party who v- quite often over the past couple of years that he's been in charge there has been pilloried as an utter failure uh, he has been uh, described as well, he, he's he's very much a hard leftist, is yes, he not? I mean, very uh, much. you can you can go back just a few years ago, I believe at the death of Hugo Chavez, I read uh, at some point last week, He he tweeted a very complimentary tweet. Uh, about Hugo Chavez's life and his contributions to uh, the working class in Venezuela and around the world. And of course, we all know how that has turned out. So Corbyn is not a man who is in any way a mainstream political figure in terms of his beliefs. Is that, is that
0: fair to say? Jeremy Corbyn is a man of the hard left of British politics. He's been at that game since the 1970s, uh, if you want to understand him, you need to understand the British Labour Party in the 1970s, which headed in that direction. He's basically an unreconstructed 1970s British lefty. He even dresses the part, to put it, to put it a more humorous way. The problem is, of course, is that um, he ran a much better campaign than Theresa May did. Uh, he comes across as very personable. But when you look at his ideas and what he actually says, I think it's not unfair to say that he's a, t- a terrorist sympathiser. Uh, he, uh, he, he, he his party has headed in a very anti-Israel direction since he took over. Uh, he's very bad on social questions and on economic issues. He wants to renationalize parts of the economy. Now, the scary thing is, is that he, he, under him, the Labour Party was expected to lose lots of seats, but they didn't. They actually gained something like 20 to 22 seats. And there's, I think, a number of reasons for that. One is that the Brexit issue is now off the table insofar as Britain is committed to Brexit. By a vote of parliament, it is committed to going to Brexit.
1: And, of so, course, Theresa May has sent the letter triggering that's right. the, that's right. the, the
0: process. So that process can't be reversed. So what that meant was that there were a lot of people in Britain on the left who were very much in favor of, of Brexit, who had been voting more or less for the UK, UKIP party or even some voting for the Tory party. But with the Brexit thing off the table... The UKIP has no purpose, so that meant that a lot of people who were voting for UKIP basically returned home. Some of those people returned to the Tory party, which is why the Tories actually increased their percentage of the vote this time, but it also meant that a lot of people who had traditionally voted for the Labour Party returned, returned home as well, which meant that their vote increased. So I think that explains some of the electoral dynamics. Another thing which is important is that a very large number of young people I guess between the let's say the below the age of 35 voted for the British Labour Party. Now I think that's partly because the British Labour Party were promising free stuff and people find that very difficult to resist, but it also reflects a certain lack of historical memory of how bad socialism was in the 1970s and 1960s in Britain, but even just knowledge of what the iron curtain was about and what went on behind the iron curtain and that I think in the, in the long term spells some big problems for <clears throat> free societies in Europe, and even I might say in the United States as well, in the sense that many young people are, for a variety of reasons, attracted to people like Bernie Sanders, to people like Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, people who do not have a serious government program, people whose command of economics is at best rudimentary, people who are really trapped in the 1960s and 1970s when it comes to thinking about social and economic policy, uh, and who basically, I think, are at war with the West itself. So I think that, that this is a ve- that's by maybe the most disturbing trend that came out of this particular election. And so far, I don't think conservatives, classical liberals have really come up with an answer to this particular problem.
1: So we are not looking uh, right now at uh, Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, as as of right now, it, it appears that Theresa May is still planning to uh, remain Prime Minister and form a coalition government?
0: Yes, whether she'll stay Prime Minister is a different question. I can imagine quite a lot of people in the Tory party would like to see her go because they, she made a classic misjudgment about the electorate and she, did a, she campaigned very badly as well. Moreover, as a result of this election, Jeremy Jeremy Corbyn is in striking distance of becoming Prime Minister of Great Britain whenever the next election is. uh, That could be soon. It could be later. It depends on whether Theresa May can construct a workable uh, relationship with the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP, uh, and uh, how long that, that particular arrangement lasts. But it's certainly going to change the nature of Brexit because the, the DUP was in favour of Brexit, but they're not in favour of a hard Brexit. They want a soft Brexit. The reason they want a soft Brexit is they want to keep the open, more or less open border with the Republic of Ireland, which has benefited both the Republic but also and Northern Ireland extremely well. And they want to keep that open. And hard Brexit would change that whole situation. So I think it's going to have implications for Brexit. Uh, It's also going to cause some difficulties for what you might call more liberal members of the Tory party who really don't like the Democratic Unionist party at all. Um, And I think it emboldens the hard left because everyone was saying they were bound to fail. They were saying that eventually the Labour Party would come to its senses and get rid of this relic from the 1970s. Well, guess what? It didn't turn out that way. Uh, so I, I think in many respects, what we're going to see economically is a shift to the left, <clears throat> because it's clearly where a lot of British sentiment is right now. We'll see uh, a moving towards a sort of soft Brexit rather than a hard Brexit. <clears throat> and we'll also see, I think, uh, a much tougher time in the parliament when it comes to Theresa May trying to get legislation through. So. I think for the at least for the next year, and depending on how long she lasts as prime minister, we're going to see a fair amount of uncertainty, which was not the case, I would say, before the election.
1: One final question, Sam: uh, 2016 uh, worldwide, really, uh, at least in in the Western nations, the United States and Britain, and in a lot of a lot of ways, Europe overall seemed to be the year of the backlash to the elite, uh, with the election of Donald Trump and with the the initial passage of Brexit, both big surprises. Um, it, now, 2017. Uh, and in just just in the last few months, we've seen Geert Wilders uh, not win in the Netherlands. We've seen uh, the French reject Marine Le Pen, and now we see the Labour Party picking up in Britain. Is this uh, a backlash to the
0: backlash? Uh, no, I don't think it is. <clears throat> I think it reflects the fact that the the the. The move against globalization, the move against what you might call political globalism takes different forms in different countries. Jeremy Corbyn, for example, is no fan of the European Union. During the Brexit campaign, he was actually criticized by his own party for not campaigning rigorously enough uh, in favour of keeping Britain in the European Union the Labour Party's position official position was we want to remain and Corbyn Corbyn's campaign to for in favour of the remain case was at best half-hearted because he'd always previously been favor been in favour for left-wing reasons of getting out of the European Union. So I think what we're seeing emerge is less of backlash against the backlash. We're just seeing more complicated electoral dynamics starting to manifest themselves. So in the case of Britain, Brexit is a done deal. It's going to happen, either hard or soft, but it's going to happen. But once that once that decision was made, that means that a lot of other subjects are going to start to rise to the surface, which I think is why you see, for example, the surge of support for the Labour Party uh, um, in the recent British general election.
1: Dr. Samuel Gregg is our Director of Research here at the Acton Institute. He has done a great deal of writing about uh, Europe, and uh, he will continue to do so. You can continue to find all of his writings at acton.org. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm sure as this process continues in the UK and in Europe, we will continue to be talking with you about it.
0: Thanks very much, Mark. Always good to be with you.
2: Hello and welcome to Upstream, the Acton Institute's podcast segment that recognizes politics is downstream from culture. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and today I'll be talking with Sarah Stanley, who is the managing editor of Religion and Liberty. And she is a one of the many wonder women here at Acton. And today we'll be discussing the new action superhero, film Wonder Woman. The film opened with a Bafo $86 million weekend. That's the highest grossing ever for a film directed by a woman. That woman is Patty Jenkins and her cast includes Gal Gadot as the title hero, Captain Kirk himself, Chris Pine as spy Steve Trevor, as well as Robin Wright, Connie Nielsen, Ewan Bremner, Lucy Davis, and David Thulis. The film begins with Wonder Woman's origin story on the island of Themyscira where Diana lives among the Amazons. Into this paradise arrives chaos in the form of Chris Pine's Steve Trevor. Steve Trevor is followed by a multitude of German soldiers, and the First World War enters the island, and Diana leaves with Steve to put a stop to the war to end all wars. So Sarah... Hi, Bruce. How are you today?
3: Great. Ter- How are you?
2: I'm terrific. Thanks. Let's talk a little bit about the film. Obviously, you've seen it. I've mm-hmm. seen it. We are we have two separate perspectives, yours female, mine male. A little different. Just a wee tad different. And uh, tell me, what is your uh, your takeaway from the film?
3: Uh, well, I really liked it. Um, you know, I grew up watching action movies. I always liked fight scenes, but I never got to see myself in those fight scenes. So seeing another uh, bro-bro, brown-eyed brunette out there kicking butt was uh, a was kind
2: of nice. Oh, terrific. Terrific. I, one of the things that uh, very much impressed me, and I love to attribute it to the simple fact that a woman directed the film, is that it is just chock-a-block with real humanity, mm-hmm. real emotions. You get to see Diana as not just a kick-butt superhero, but you also see her as an individual who is just full of compassion empathy, humanity. Uh, she's in a lot of ways a Candide character, a Nafe who comes into the real world of London during World War One, and marvels at such simple pleasures as ice cream and looks at and sees her very first baby
3: right well and I think um I think uh the director Patty did a really great job taking this this story which I think in the past Wonder Woman has always been a little bit flat and has always been kind of just the token female who's not really feminine who's not really girly in any way she just happens to be a girl and I think this movie it's not like that like she her, her femininity, her motherly instincts, her daughterly instincts are a huge part of the script and part of the plot.
2: Right, and I think it's important to point out to our audience as well that not only what you said is entirely true, but she is not sexualized as no. much as she has been in no, the past. No, not at all. Uh, you know, certainly her, her costume makes it easy for her to do some of her wild gymnastics and, you know, take on the uh, the German army. But uh, it, it's not terribly, totally revealing, but it actually ha- has function over, mm-hmm. over fashion. Oh, so definitely. speaking of that, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, female empowerment.
3: Okay.
2: Uh, do you think that uh, the Diana Prince character, because I don't think she's ever really referred to as Wonder Woman in the movie.
3: No, not at all.
2: That the Diana Prince character can serve as a role model for young women, be they eight years old or eighteen.
3: Oh, definitely. And one thing I really liked about the movie is the positive portrayal as a of a strong woman, as a leader, of a warrior, all these things without sort of preaching it saying, Oh, well, we, we need we need this lady to do these things. She just shows up from her matriarchal society, goes to World War One London, and is like, What is going on? Like, I need to be in these meetings. I need to you know do my job and fight this evil person. everyone's you know, kind of holding her back because it's obviously a very different time.
2: Right. she's uh, she comes from a, a tribe of Amazons and it's unheard of for her to be denied access to high level meetings. Right and I mean
3: she's the daughter of the queen. That's pretty much as high as you get, besides the queen.
2: Exactly, exactly. And
3: I think it handled that really well, just showing, you know, maybe we need we need women in this space, without saying, "Hey, everybody, listen to me, men are evil," which is not the message of the movie at all.
2: No, not at all. So you told me off mic that uh, there you had a, several problems with the movie. Would you care to relate those?
3: Right. Yeah. So a couple of things. It's very per- not not personal, but personal issues where I don't love CGI. <laughs> And uh, especially the final scene was a lot of CGI. You know, I don't want to spoil it, but it gets pretty intense when she's meeting the uh the final baddie. And I, I just I like f- connections, human connections. So all the CGI at the end was a little much for me.
2: Right. So for an act in audience, Sarah, and you know from your your particular perspective as mm-hmm. the editor of Religion and Liberty. Tell me a little bit why you would recommend this to our audience.
3: Sure. Well, I think it's it's just a great hero's journey story. Um, It's a great message for just the humanity. Um, there are several instances where she's talking to other, I guess we could say, deities about humanity, and they're all saying, oh, they're evil, they're terrible, and she still sees the humanity. good in them. Yeah, yeah. She still sees the good in humans. She still sees... She, c- she learns a lot about people, and I think the audience does too, and that's important.
2: And she becomes a champion of people. And for me, I think some of the best takeaways from the movie is just there are wonderful themes of, of sacrifice and, yes. and, and other virtues in the mm-hmm. service of, of great causes, and those great causes are, are humanity.
3: Right. All of the main characters basically care about doing things outside of themselves, whereas the, the baddies, they all have very selfish interests. And I think it's important to see, you know, the doing things for self versus outside of yourself.
2: Well, terrific. Sarah Stanley, thank you for joining me today to discuss Wonder Woman. I'm Bruce Edward Walker for Upstream. We'll talk to you next time. And that brings us to
1: the end of this edition of Radio Free Acton. A lot of people to thank today. First of all, thanks to Dr. Samuel Gregg for joining us uh, to talk about the U.K. elections and the impact that they will have on the Brexit process. Uh, Thanks as well to Bruce Edward Walker and a a warm welcome as well to Bruce uh, for joining the uh, podcast crew here at the Acton Institute to his segment Upstream. We'll feature from time to time talking about various uh, cultural issues and uh, pop culture things. We're excited to have Bruce uh, on board here bringing his vast array of pop culture knowledge to Radio Free Acton. And uh, we hope you enjoy the segment. Uh, Thanks as well to Sarah Stanley for joining us to talk Wonder Woman. And I want to thank my producer as well, Daniel Menjivar, who is joining the Radio Free Acton crew and uh, did a lot of work on this episode. We're very excited to have him along as well. And uh, thanks, Daniel, for your work uh, here on the podcast this week. Well, that's, uh, that's it for this week, folks. Thanks so much for joining us. If you haven't subscribed to Radio Free and please do so. We're on iTunes and Google Play, just search for Radio Free Actin, click that subscribe button, and make us all happy here uh, at Radio Free Actin. We like to be happy, we like to know that people are listening. And uh, if you know folks who you think would be interested in Radio Free Actin or the work of the Actin Institute, uh, hey, send them the link to the podcast and send them over to our website, actin.org. So much great content there. Uh, and the Power Blog as well. Uh, great content Monday through Friday every week uh, from an Acton perspective. Lots of news and commentary. So uh, that is it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. We will talk to you again on future editions of Radio Free Acton. See you everybody.